We have a copy of the scriptures. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Hebrews, chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading at verse 7. Uh, the argument of the writer at this point is that Christ uh, has a more excellent ministry. And because he is the mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been found for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that in your kindness and mercy, you will draw near to us as we come and open and expound and apply your word. Grant to us understanding, and Heavenly Father, grant to us hope, and grant to us, Heavenly Father, a, a renewed sense of your love and grace for us who are your children, and may it be, Lord, that today your goodness will lead some to repentance, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. In the spring of 1989, a small group of believers met together in Shively uh, here in Louisville. And officially that day began the planting of what was called the Reformed Baptist Fellowship of Louisville. The overseeing church, the Reformed Baptist Church of Grand Rapids, as it was then known, sent one of their pastors, a man named Sam Waldron, to preach. And I'm sure he had to wrestle through, what am I going to say? What am I going to preach to this congregation on their very first Lord's Day together as they're seeking to plant a church? What word will I bring? What text will I bring? Well, the text that he brought as only a few now, I think there's only four here this morning in this room that were there then. The text that he chose was Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophecy of the new covenant. Now, Pastor Waldron dealt with that text in such a way as to help God's people to understand what this says to us as a new covenant community and how it would help us as a Reformed Baptist church to understand our identity, both what we were and what we were not. Now, I think it was at our 25th anniversary that Sam came back and preached 
uh, that text again, uh, but I'm going to do it now once more uh, this morning or begin uh, to do it this morning. We're going to take uh, several weeks in this particular section of the scriptures. Now, as we come to this really glorious passage, we remind ourselves yet again that the major purpose of this text, there is a major purpose. It has ancillary purposes. It has many applications, but it has one primary purpose, and it is to prove the assertion that Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. And that properly understood when contrasted and compared with the Mosaic covenant that it was in every way better than the old. Believing Jews, and when I say believing, I mean believing in the Lord Jesus, these what we sometimes refer to as Messianic Jews who were feeling the pressure of their faith in Jesus were tempted to find their way back to the old covenant. And they needed to know that there was no help there, that that was not a better move for them. They needed to know that it was not only inferior to that which Jesus had brought, but it was obsolete and coming to an end. And God would, as it were, put an exclamation point on that truth some weeks or months later when the temple was destroyed and the heart and soul of that old covenant was done away with. Now for us as Gentiles, and most of us are Gentiles here, uh, and even if you are a Jew living 2,000 years after the fact, it may be difficult to grasp the power of what is being said in this passage. If you had been a first century Jew living during this time of transition, when the old was becoming, as it were, obsolete and passing away and would be no more, this was your life. The old covenant was the, was the air that you breathed. It was the ground beneath your feet. Now, they had, to be sure, been told hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Jeremiah that a new covenant was coming. And they were told what the dynamics of that new covenant would be, but that the coming of that covenant would do away with their covenant, that it would make the Mosaic covenant obsolete, that they would grasp that it was temporary and coming to an end was something that would have been really amazing for them at that time. Now for the recipients of this letter, this sermon that we call the book of Hebrews, this was not just information. This was not a theology class. This was intended, as we have said so many times, to bind their wandering hearts to the Lord Jesus. It was to bring them joy and comfort and stability and hope. Soon the dynamics of the old would come to a catastrophic end. It wouldn't just fade away. Armies would come into Jerusalem in 70 AD and lay waste to the city and that glorious temple, that amazing temple. And I, I don't know how many of you looked at that 
video representation of what the old temple looked like and, and how stunning it would have been when Jesus said not one stone would be left upon another. The temple would be gone. The sacrifices would end. The priests would serve no more and they would be ejected from that land of promise. The curses of the law that they had been bound to in that old covenant would come upon that land with fresh power because that covenant, as we are reminded, was broken. Now, as we seek to understand this text and its context, as well as its contemporary application and comfort, I want to consider today three things. Now, again, we're going to come back. Uh, when we get to my final point, the dynamics of the new covenant, I'm really just going to touch upon their meaning. We'll take one, if not uh, or two of them per Lord's Day uh, over the next couple of weeks because I think that they deserve that kind of attention. But I want to begin today by looking at the gracious foundation of the new covenant. Secondly, we're going to need to consider the recipients of the new covenant. And then finally, I'm going to say something about the dynamics of the new covenant. Let's begin by looking at the gracious nature of the new covenant. I, I hope you see it in the text. And if you haven't, then I trust God will enable us now uh, to, to, to marvel at what is being said here. Why was there the need of the new covenant? Remember, we looked at this some time ago. Why was there a need for a new covenant? And the answer was because of the hearts of the recipients of the old covenant, finding fault with them, finding fault with them. He says, behold, the days are coming. Verse eight says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant. So I disregarded them. Why was there the need of a new covenant? He found fault with them. Why? Because they did not continue in his covenant and God disregarded them. Now, this quotation, as I've already alluded, is taken from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 31, is the original context. And there are some slight variations uh, in the language from as it's presented in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament and as the writer here quotes it uh, in the New and, and listen again, largely similar, but there are some words and phrases that again help us to understand the need of the new covenant and its gracious nature. Jeremiah 31, 31, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with my fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So what is the need of the new covenant? Is the fault in the covenant itself? Is there something wrong with God's law in and of itself? Was the fault in the lesser mediator, Moses? Was it that the laws of God were in fact not good, not perfect, 
not to be desired more than fine gold? Is it that they were upon further relaxation, uh, further reflection, not better than the honey of the honeycomb? Was it that the law failed to showcase the character and the will of God? Was it that it was not a standard of righteousness? Was that the problem? No, the problem was with their humanity. It's not a distinctly Jewish problem. This is not meant to be an anti-Semitic uh, uh, slur that God found fault with them. Uh, had it been any of us, he would have found that fault. But they were, and the writings of their own prophets told them that they had a heart problem. And this is a long-standing issue as you read the prophets addressing the hearts of the old covenant people, rebellious, stiff-necked, spiritually adulterous. We read in Jeremiah chapter 9, this is just one of many texts we could bring to bear. Verse 25, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are uncircumcised, excuse me, all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Circumcised in the flesh, but not in the heart. And we are reminded clearly here in Jeremiah and, and, Israel, and elsewhere that Israel had broken that covenant God made with them. They broke it immediately and they broke it repeatedly over the centuries. Now, there had been curses that God had associated with disobedience. And I'm not going to read the whole of it, but if you want to read Deuteronomy chapter 28 later today and beginning around verse 25, excuse me, verse 15 and reading through to the end, you'll find these curses. Let me, let me read to you a portion of this. This is what God says would happen if they disregarded the covenant. Okay, this is it. This is what would happen. You'd, I made this covenant with you. If you don't obey, if you don't follow it, this is what is going to come to pass. But it shall come to pass. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Curse shall you be in the city and curse shall you be in the country. Curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Curse shall you be when you come in and curse shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. Did they obey? No. Did they forsake? Yes. Now, when Jeremiah is writing his prophecy, these curses were taking place. Now, there had been previews of it. You can read in the book of Judges, there were previews of it. 
And then regarding the northern kingdom, and I realize I should, I don't want to take for granted that everybody understands this Old Testament, Old Testament history. So very, very quickly, thumbnail sketch. Following the period of the judges, there was the monarchy, a united kingdom, and it began with a man named Saul. And following Saul, there was the great King David for 40 years. Following David's reign, there was the reign of his son Solomon, a largely successful and peaceful reign. But Solomon had had his heart turn away from the Lord. He had worshipped other gods. He had created rival temples and rival altars to horrific deities of the nations because of his intermarriage with unbelieving women. And God had said that the, the nation was going to be divided. In the days of Solomon's son, the nation was divided. A man named Jeroboam leads a rebellion. And now you have a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom with a king in Jerusalem. And that's called the kingdom of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom had been taken away already by the time Jeremiah writes. The Assyrians had come in and led them away captive. And you can read about this in 2 Kings and in, uh, in the books of the Chronicles. But now Babylon was coming. Not, not Assyria, but Babylon was coming. They were going to come upon Judah just as Assyria had come upon the northern kingdom of Israel decades before. Now, it had taken generations for this to come to pass. When did they begin to break the covenant? Days after it was made. When did they first begin to worship other gods? Within days of standing there and hearing the voice of God on Mount Sinai. And though there was a period of, of cleansing, 40 years in the wilderness, God allows them to go into the promised land. And before too long, there arises a generation who doesn't remember their past, and they begin to worship other gods, and you have the times of the judges and, and all of that. But now... The curses of the covenant are going to be seen in a way they had not yet been seen hitherto. God had dealt with them patiently. He had withheld the fullness of his wrath and of his judgment. And now they would know his curse. They would be vomited out of the land. They would make their way to an unknown tongue. And the temple would be in ruins. It would need to be rebuilt. And we say that though this is horrific, read the book of Lamentations if you want to get an idea of what the judgment of God looks like. We can sanitize it. Jeremiah doesn't sanitize it in the book of Lamentations. And it seems perhaps to us, well, where is God's mercy? Where is his kindness? And of course, it's in the context of lamentations that we read that, is, that we are not consumed because his loving kindnesses are renewed every day and great is his faithfulness. Even in this, there is mercy. Even in wrath, there is mercy. But as we look at this and we say, well, this is what the Lord said he would do. How long is he going to bear with them? That's a question that the prophets asked. How long would he bear with them? And how patient he had been, how loving and kind and forgiving. 
But now that cup was, as it were, overflowing, the cup of wrath. And it was at long last in the days of Jeremiah payday. The chickens had come home to roost. And so what do you expect the Lord to say to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah who had brought upon themselves such condemnation and judgment so that another nation is going to come in and they will be the rod of his anger and drive them from the land, destroy the temple, and bring them into exile. And what does he say? I'm going to make a new covenant with you. He doesn't say I'm going to wipe you out. That's what the curse of the covenant called for, right? I'm going to wipe you out. I will purge you. I will destroy you. You're finished. No, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And in this new covenant, I will do in you what the old covenant could not do. I'm going to deal with you where you need to be dealt with. I'm going to deal with you in your heart. And I will make such a covenant that cannot be broken. This is what I'm going to do. Brethren, these words are so amazingly gracious to a people who may have stood on the basis of just thinking, we're done. We're cooked. It's over. We could say that God would have been justified, that that this would be a, a, a remnant of people wiped out like so many other nations in the past are just gone. And yet he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. So let's consider, secondly, the recipients of the new covenant. Now, on the one hand, this seems perhaps quite clear. And what's the confusion? Well, I think it will help you to understand what the confusion is. And I'll try to make it hopefully clarify it, not muddy it further. Jeremiah 31, 30, 30, uh, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with, here's the recipients, the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That language is repeated in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8. It sounds fairly clear, isn't it? It's, it's, it's with Jews. It's the, it, it, the Jewish nature is emphasized and it, when it is compared and contrasted with statements not like the covenant that I made with their fathers and mothers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So who did he bring out of the land of Egypt? Ethnic Jews, right? Now the question comes in light of further revelation, is this covenant made exclusively with ethnic Israel? That is, do any of us have any hope that when we read of this new covenant that we can say, hey, this is, this is for us, even though you're not ethnically a Jew? Now, some have said the answer is, is obviously, well, yes, it, 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 just take the Bible literally, which I'm going to strive to do. But they say, does that not mean that this is with ethnic Jews? And there are some who have taught, therefore, that this is something yet future. And they would even argue that the church shouldn't celebrate the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is rooted in the new covenant. 
Because Jesus said, this is the new covenant with my blood. Well, it's made with Israel. Israel doesn't believe in Jesus. Therefore, the new covenant hasn't come about yet. It's going to come at some time later. And we shouldn't uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's kind of a, a hyper dispensationalism for some who would understand that phraseology. I don't need to get into all that because I'm not here to tell you what it doesn't say. I'm here to tell you what it does say. Is there a way to understand the recipients of the new covenant in light of the fuller revelation of God's word? Now we must understand that this is gloriously spoken to ethnic Jews. Jesus said in Matthew 10, keep, keep this language in mind because it's really, there's a, Jesus doesn't say I've changed my mind later. But he does now open a door that had previously been closed. In Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, we read, uh, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's fairly clear, right? Not the Samaritans, not the Gentiles. But what happens in the Great Commission? Our Lord having come and died and now risen, go therefore, yes, to the lost sheep of Israel, but go now also to the nations. And remembering what was said in Matthew 10, now listen to Acts 1.8, saying to the disciples, speaking of the power that would come by the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Paul's strategy with the gospel, or as he hear, as the gospel went, went forth by the apostles and other missionaries sent out, is in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first. By priority and by chronology, and then to the Greek or to the Gentiles. Now, we have been studying from time to time in... Uh, often would have been today, but I thought, no, this I want to bring this today... Uh, we've been going into the book of, of Romans when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And part of what we've been looking at lately in the book of Romans is the question that, that arose in the infant church by the bringing together of Jews and Gentiles in one church. And again, remember, these are the days of, these are all, it's all brand new. This is, this is, and have centuries to work this out. They're hammering it out. And questions are being asked, how are these Gentiles saved? Are they saved by becoming Jewish first, by circumcision and obedience to the dietary laws, etc.? Or can they go directly to Jesus? Can they bypass being a Jew first and be a Gentile and accepted purely on the work of Jesus? And then answering that question, how are they saved? And the answer is clearly by grace through faith. Then what is their position in the Jewish community, not that they now enter into, because the infant church was Jewish. And the Gentiles are coming in. And Paul deals with this question in several places. 
Let me just quote two of them. Romans chapter 11, and this is dealing with the question of uh, does, does what's happening so many Jews are believing, so many Gentile, uh, sorry, so many Gentiles are believing, so many Jews are rejecting. Does this nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul's wanted to let you no, of course not. But he has to deal with this. And how does this work out? And, and there's much that could be said. There are previous sermons online you can listen to some of this dealt with in more detail. But it's in this context that Paul makes this argument. Verse 17, and if some of the branches, talking about the Jewish branch, he's talking about that this tree of Israel, as it were, and unbelieving branches being broken off. This is a common scriptural motif. If branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them, Gentiles, became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Israel was the olive tree. Gentiles are grafted in. They become partakers of the root and fatness of it, while unbelieving branches are broken off. Again, they're grafted in. They are not two separate trees. That's the point I'm making. Gentiles get grafted in to the covenant people of God that had been ethnically, almost exclusively ethnically pure, no longer so. Now, Paul now makes it abundantly clear in Ephesians chapter 2. And again, we're dealing with the question, who are the recipients of the new covenant? Ephesians chapter 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both, who's the both, Jew and Gentile. He's not made them both two. He's made them both one. And he has broken down the middle wall of separation. This is a reference to the wall that separated the court of Gentiles who had wanting to know the the, the God of Israel, but there was a wall that separated them. Jesus broke it down, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That enmity is rooted in this old covenant. The law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And then he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Jew. And uh, uh, sorry, my brain, I'm trying to get it right here, guys. He came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentile, and to those you were near, the Jew. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. It's not rooted anymore, it's not rooted in your ethnic identity. I got to come to the Father because I'm a Jew. I got to come by the Father because I'm in Christ. Now, therefore, now saying to the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household 
of God. This is reemphasized in chapter 3 and verse 6, where he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That is to say that the house of Israel and Judah, from a biblical perspective, includes all the believing children of Abraham, no matter their ethnic background. Remember that the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant were meant for the world. And Paul says this in Galatians 3 in verses 7 and 8. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. That's the gospel. The Gentiles in Christ partake of the promise of Abraham. They are the seed of Abraham by faith. This is why Paul can describe the church, Jew and Gentile, as the Israel of God in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16. And why Peter, in writing to a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, uses the exclusive language, or what had been the exclusive language of Israel, now to describe the new people, Jew and Gentile together, in one body made by grace through faith. He says in 1 Peter 2, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Unless you say, well, Jim, he's just talking about Jewish believers. No, he's not. Because listen to what he says in verse 10. Who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who have not obtained mercy and now have obtained mercy. Now that can refer to Israel as it does, because that's the language of Hosea. Remember, there were the, he had the children, lo Rahuma and lo Ami, no mercy, not my people. But now, because of God's grace, they could be called his people. But here, it's a reference to the Gentiles being brought in. So who receives the promises of the new covenant? Because remember, Paul is bold to say to the Corinthians, we are ministers of the new covenant. So this is, it is here. It's not going to be coming. It is here. It came in the blood of Jesus. Who are the recipients of the promises of the new covenant? Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ. Now, what are the dynamics of the new covenant? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of them his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. All right, now, as I'm going to break it down, there are four essential dynamics or promises of the new covenant. First, I will write my law in your inner man. Secondly, I will be your God and you will be my people. Thirdly, everyone in it will know me. And fourthly, they will gloriously receive the forgiveness of sins. So first of all, and I'm only going to touch on this. I'm going to spend a little bit of time in the last one as we conclude. I will write my laws in your inner man. I will put my laws, God says, in their mind 
and write them on their hearts. I will put, I will give, I will deposit, I will grant, I will place. God is going to do this by the Spirit and the lives of his new covenant people. And again, we'll come back to this more fully next time, but simply to say that there is all the difference in the world between the law written on stone and the law written on the heart and placed in the mind. Now, I'm going to argue as we get into this more fully that it was the law written by the finger of God in stone, which is summarized in love for God and love for neighbor, and not all the peculiar case laws and other things that made up theocratic Israel but a disposition of love to God and love to neighbor, to reverence and honor and to worship God, to love our neighbor and to love them in the way that the law prescribes. When God gave the law on Sinai, Moses describes it that he wrote his law with his own finger. And he wrote it on tablets of stone. So one of the children asked, what pen did God use? He used... Now, it's his own finger. Now, does God have a finger like men have a finger? And all? It, it, it's simply meant to describe. And whatever this looked like, and I guess you, I'm sure some of you are going to have Cecil B. DeMille or uh, whoever directed Prince of Egypt in your mind. I think, no, they, they don't, do they show the law? I don't remember. They, I don't think they do. But they do it in the old Ten Commandments. And out of the fire it comes and sh- writes it there. Now, however God did it, When Moses destroyed that law, broke it in light of showing the horror of the sins of the people, when those commandments were rewritten, God wrote them again. It's the only law that we read of in the scriptures of God writing with his finger. This is why I say that we have reason to believe that this is the same law written in the heart and in the mind. And what we need to recognize here is that God is going to give in the new covenant a new heart. It's going to make us new creations. It's going to remove that a heart of stone and in its place give a beating heart of flesh. And in that he's going to give a desire to honor him and love him and obey him and a power to do so. Secondly, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Again, we're going to look at some of this more fully, God willing, at a later time. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the promise of the old and is brought forward into the new. Who is your God? I mean, we could ask that of of anybody in the world. And some would say, I have no God. And you say, well, you do. It's yourself, it's your lust, it's your flesh, it's culture, it's others around you. That is your God. Others would say, well, my God is Allah, or my God is this, or my, my God is that. Man is made to be a worshiper. But blessed is the nation and blessed are the people that have the Lord as their God. Our God is not a God of stone. It's the one true and living God, the triune God, the God of the Bible, not God generically, not merely a belief in in, in theism, but the God who's revealed himself in three persons. And he allows us to call him ours 
And then wonderfully, he takes us as his own. We're his people. They belong to me. I am unashamed to own them, to love them, to provide for them, to protect them, to feed them, and one day take them to myself forever. Thirdly, there is in this dynamic of the new covenant, the universal knowledge of God. You see, under the old covenant, the people of Israel were a mixed multitude. And you need to understand that if you're really going to understand your Bible. Because you look at, well, these are the people of God, and yet, you know, they worship idols, they commit adultery, they, they live these nasty lives in all of these different ways. They don't love each other, take care of each other. They do injustice, love oppression, and all of the accusations of the prophets that come upon them. And yet, you also find among them, for every Saul, there is a David, and uh, there are uh, Isaiah's and Jeremiah's and Daniel's and and uh, Hananiah, Mishael's, and Azariah's, and others who obviously love the Lord, Abigail, and on and on we could go. And in that old covenant, that was okay because it was a covenant made, as it were, in a sense, there was a fleshly element to it. You and your children were brought into it, and it did not necessarily mean that because God was the God of the nation, that he was your God, he trusted in him, knew him, loved him, and believed on him, and had eternal life. But God says there's going to be something different in this new covenant. Because in the old, you had to go and you evangelized your brother or your neighbor. And you would say to them, listen, you need to know the Lord. You need to know him in a saving sense, in a deep sense in your soul. And while we exhort each other as believers to press on uh, in this way, let's, let's deepen in our love of the Lord. Let's deepen in our knowledge of the Lord. And, but we all say, this is part of our testimony. In fact, sometimes our salvation story is described as when we came to know the Lord. And we might say to somebody that we're meeting, do you know the Lord? And what do we mean by that? Well, we mean that God has changed us in this way. He has brought about into our hearts a knowledge of him. It's not just that we know about him, but we know him. We have a relationship with him. We love him. We desire to deepen our understanding of who he is and to allow that to sweeten and deepen our communion with him, that the more we know who he is, the more we'll love him and the more we will glorify and enjoy him. A text that I, has so much application, but I'm, I'm going to restrain myself. But let me just read a portion of Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches, that is, Watch your Twitter profile, right? But let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. I'm going to open that up, God willing, in the days to come. That he understands me and he knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. And then finally, there is the glorious forgiveness of sins. 
And I just want you to think about for a moment here the, the potency with which these sins are described. Hebrews 8, verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. The Jeremiah passage in our translation reads, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Iniquity. Unrighteous deeds. Lawless deeds. Sins. That's what we bring to the Lord when we come to him. These sins. You think about the, the nation of Israel with whom this, this covenant was made. And remember, their sins were so great that they were being taken out of the land. The temple destroyed. Their king led away in chains with hooks in his flesh as they led him away. Famine had come. Cannibalism had come. Mothers bereaved of their children. Blood running in the streets. That's what sin, that's a picture of what sin calls for. These were not what we you know, sometimes call minor transgressions. However you might define it. You know, there are things that when somebody comes up to us sometimes and they say, hey, I need to, I need to ask your forgiveness. And you say, well, well, what, what did you do? And what we're expecting, we're not expecting them to say, well, I just butchered your parents. I need to ask your forgiveness. I violated your wife and your children. I'm just, no, what we're expecting, they're going to say something like, you know, when I said I ate eight pieces of pizza, it was only four. I don't know why I was bragging. I, I, I was exaggerating something. I wanted to let you know that I, I told a little fib. Or, or you, and what do you expect them to say? Well, that's, that's okay. No problem. I forgive you. I, you know, you exaggerated or you got irritated at me, as odd as that might be. I get it. You spoke too much. You ignored me. You disrespected me. You looked at a girl or guy longer and with more longing than you should have. You know, I mean, hey, we're all, we're all just human, right? But there are other things which I've alluded to. You hurt my kid. You disrespected my wife. You were drunk and killed someone that I loved. You, you robbed and you beat me. Well, you say, well, then my soul would long for justice and retribution. There's a part that would say, you're going to pay. You see, these people of old were idolatrous. That may not be a big deal to you, but it was a big deal to God. They, he was their husband and they cheated on him. That's a big deal. They abused one another, took advantage of one another, used their wealth and position to crush others. They killed their children in the worship of other gods. They committed adultery. And on and on we could go, opening up the first and second table of the law, as well as the multitude of case laws that they disregarded and broke. So that when God looks at them and says, I will forgive your unrighteous deeds, that's what he's talking about. When he says your sins and your iniquity, your perversion, I will remember no more. 
You will not answer for it on the day of judgment. Your soul will not be separated from me forever. What I'm saying is these sins matter. Now, how and why could God say this and do this? You see, God is incapable as a God of justice from doing what we sometimes do with lesser transgressions. And say, no biggie. God has never had a single sin that he has looked at in that way. His eyes are so pure that he cannot look at evil. And so what God is saying is this, that in this covenant, it will be brought about in the blood of my own son. And the forgiveness and the mercy and the covering that I offer will be because of him and his willingness to bear my wrath against your sins and your iniquities and your lawless deeds. I can forgive them because they have been covered and paid for. And everyone here in this room who has sinned and sinned repeatedly and sinned grossly at some time in your life, inwardly or outwardly, many of us are going to come with joy and take the bread and the cup. And we're going to take that cup, which is the cup of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus, and we will relish in the glory that our sins are forgiven because his body was given and his blood was shed. And you see, we will have this joy. Not because we have placated God on our own. Not because God is saying to us, you know what? Again, he is so, he, he's so merciful. He's so gracious. And yet in the magnitude of that mercy and grace, he cannot say of our sins, it's okay. No, in order for you to be forgiven, they must be paid for. And because you cannot pay for them, my son will. Some of you can't take. Because you have not yet come to know this Savior. And I'm here to tell you that one day those sins, those unrighteous deeds, those iniquities, they need to be paid for. Because one day, like for Israel, payday will come. One day, as it were, the chickens will come home to roost. And you will pay for your sin. Well, that's a strange way to say because, in essence, we never pay for them fully because... The judgment of a holy God upon an impenitent soul lasts forever. Jesus paid in a moment what you cannot pay in an eternity in hell. We are here today and we have the access we have and the joy that we have and the knowledge of God that we have all because we have a hope that our sins are covered and forgiven. Is that your hope? It's the hope of the gospel that's freely offered to all. Well, let's pray and let's ask God's blessing on these things as we transition to the table. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time to be together and to consider the truth as it is in Jesus. Father, we do pray that you would own and bless these things for our joy, our comfort, for your glory, and for the good of eternal souls. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.